Hello everyone, my name is Sophie von Lohr and I'm here today to talk to you about a lot of interesting things. But before I get to that, let me tell you a little bit about who I am. One, I'm a neuroscientist. Two, I'm a bioengineer. Three, I'm a system engineer. I will share a little bit about myself and my quirky background and where I come from as a kid in chaos that has come to invent a robotic arm that works with eye signal as a kid that has now been very interested in leadership and creating devices that hopefully is gonna change the course of humanity. But who knows, this might be interesting to you and who knows, you might learn something. I hope you do, stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of Curiosity Bites, a delicious episode where my guest is Sophie Van Laar. Uh, she is uh, an amazing human being. In the previous section, we talked about uh, being born in chaos and what that was like and how she uh, was you know, born in Iran just uh, as the uh, revolution had started and um, her parents who had been uh, thinkers and had been pretty uh, significant individuals were suddenly repressed. Our mom had changed careers and how she had gone to school in this um, religious system that uh, would lash people for showing their hair. You know, there was a lot in there. And if you didn't get to that, I, I really would love for you to go back because we talked about how we are really ex in our lives, we experience situations that I call fire that either define or refine us. And we're talking about how, in the next part, in the last part, we talked about how it had really defined the environment that she was living in. And now we want to talk about, uh, at the end of the last show, we talked about uh, that moment of leaving Iran and the resistance within, within herself of uh, stepping into this myth that her mom had told about where women become powered, empowered and do great things. And because it seemed mythological uh, in the world that she lived in and the desire to stay with the familiar because it is, quote, familiar, not because it's good but because it's familiar. So we we kind of left it off there. And if you didn't get it, please go back. Now we're going to come and jump in further into, okay, so now you, your mom, your dad have made the decision. You were told to pack carefully because you're never going to see anything again. Uh, we're going to get out of here. You're out of Iran. You uh, cross the border. You make your way to the United States and you arrive here. Talk to us about whatever it is you remember about that, that first day in this weird, must have been weird place with McDonald's signs and, and you know, women wearing what the heck they like and maybe even, uh, I mean, it's just TV. I mean, it's just, I can think of so many things that would have seemed strange. Do you remember that first day at all? Oh, I do. Um, first of all, we flew into JFK. So that was that was interesting because New York is not the greatest thing to see at first, as beautiful as it is, because the crowd and noise and it just reminded me of Tehran. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's that's very similar. 
So that was interesting because it was familiar, but um, also it was hoping for more of a greenery around. But then the minute we drove away, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, things changed. So I was very amused by the, the many green lands and uh, things that is right outside of the New York and how things happen. And we moved to Virginia and lived in Virginia ever since. But going back to the story of the, the suitcase, the carry yes. the tiny suitcase my father dropped on my floor. So I chose to take, let me, let me ask you, guess what I chose to take? Well, I would imagine you would take a book, possibly two. Um, I imagine you would take some, um, uh, what do we call it? A, a symbol, um, meaning a, uh, might be a, might be a toy, but it's more likely to be a, like an ornament or something that is a significant memorabilia to you of your home it might be a rock or stone that kind of thing that's my my thoughts um you're right on uh, so but my my mother did not assume that would be the case she thought <laughs> um, <laughs> more level-headed than that than to forget any sort of clothing underwear toothbrush nothing um i did not take anything that could have come handy so let's just say nothing that. practical, nothing practical whatsoever. Where's your knickers? They're in Iran. Uh, <laughs> Where's your sock? They're in Iran. <laughs> Where's your toothpaste? <laughs> it's in Iran. <laughs> so she was so pissed that for I'm three sure. days, she refused to buy me clothing. So I had to operate with the same clothing for three days and just, it was disgusting. Um, so yeah, she was very mad at me. But I took a lot of books. I took a lot of books and this puppet I had and that I would use to talk to myself with. It was yeah. my, my way of mitigating my negative self-talk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> exactly. Um, she's a mouse. Mm -hmm. um, so I took Mousy. Uh, her name in Farsi is Mushi. Uh, I took Mushi and a lot of books. And the books were not the books I ever bought for myself. I had a habit with my friends that every birthday we give each other their poetry books. And then we kind of highlight or put some sort of leaves or whatever in pages that we each like oh. before we giving it away so that we kind of tell the other person, this is what I like. So when you read it, you think of them. Yeah, beautiful. So I took those books and Mushi. So. Wow. Yeah. Was there, so these were not books you had, you had chosen. They were books your friends had chosen for you. Right. So let me ask you, is, is do you still have those books? Of course. I, yeah, that's the first thing I pack every time I move. Yeah, that's uh, what I would have thought. Yeah, that's the habit I got. And uh, even though I have not talked to those friends ever since at all, uh, those books is the pieces of my personality that remains. So, so, so talk to us now, because you, like you said, you arrived in New York, you went to Virginia. Um, 
you're 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 there in Virginia, um, and you go to I imagine you go to school. You're 16 at that point, right? Yes. So you're 16. So you go to school. Um, university, yeah. So you went straight to university at 16. Yes. Oh, okay. I, I finished early uh, high school. I was in a special okay. program uh, for like gifted children. Um, so I finished very early. So when I came here, I had my high school diploma. So, yeah, because I mean, the education system obviously is different. Um, do you think it was a more sophisticated system there than Absolutely. in America? 100%. Yeah, uh, see, that's one of the things that I think is one of the illusions, right? So, you know, I talked about earlier in the last section, I talked about when I went to Iran, one of the research pieces I did was that more women have MBAs than in than in most other countries. And it was like, people were like, really? And I'm like, yeah, their education system is superb. Yes, there's a lot of religious stuff that is rammed down their throat, but the education system is pretty insane. But a lot of it was influenced by the British system, which yeah. again is different than the American system. And there tends to be a higher level of intellectual training in these in these countries so you you were brought up in a different educational system but you were also in a special program do you are you aware now what it was that put you into that program <clears throat> what, um, what it was in your abilities so it started when i was like early on elementary school and then you have yeah. middle school in on and then high school in middle school I was like, it was a very great school. It was called Rapponi. It's famous for the intellectual woman that runs it. Uh, she's a fantastic human being. Shout out if she, she's alive and she's, I hope she's well. Um, she actually had a program called Engineering of the Mind in the school. Uh, it was Engineering of the Mind. Yes. In Iran. In Iran. And um, of course, you'd have to take tennis, basketball, volleyball, swimming, French, um, Spanish, Arabic, and of course, very high level calculus classes are starting in middle school. Um, so when I got done with that, I was number one in my school. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I got recruited by my high school. Um, which was called the Nuclear Science High School. <laughs> yes, really? Yeah. <laughs> they were trained in nuclear scientists. Um, surprisingly, nobody in my family found that a red flag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there might have been a, hmm, this could be tricky. Um, yeah, that might cause problem. <laughs> but um, it was prestigious. And at the time, nobody cared about that idea. And yeah, I got in. Uh, it was... I had an equivalence of the pageant mom, except that it was about academia. So right. <laughs> An academia, academia version of the pageant mom. That is fabulous. Right. <laughs> so she, she was very excited. Um, my father also, he has three mm. PhDs, so he is very <laughs> academically driven. Um, so anyways, I got to the school and it was, it was interesting because you had to study to stay in the school. I had to study till midnight and then I would wake up at 4 a.m. every day wow. and study again. So 
I would sleep four hours for three years. Um, wow. Yeah, believe it or not, it was actually, I was on f- major flow. <laughs> Again, it goes back to how much I like learning. Yes. Yeah, so it, we finished differential equations, differential, what is the, after calculus is the differential equations classes, I don't know what it's called, but right. we finished all the higher maths that you finish here in undergrad yes. engineering in high school so you you know really you finished high school at the level of probably a maybe a second or third year university student in america so you came so you came here as this um academically advanced individual um was, we, did you go to high school at all or were you automatically just put straight into university? So they already recognize your academic levels and put you right into the university? Uh, they were kind of weirded out by it. I went to George Mason University and at the time the admission was a lot easier than it is now. Um, they gave me a conditional deal. They were like, okay, you take a calculus class and a psychology class. Yes. And if you score, like if you get an A on both, you're in. Because I wow. had like a SAT and I had a TOEFL exam, which is like yeah. English, um, which I did obviously, right? But what was interesting, like I'll tell you a story that is funny. Um, first day of my calculus class, it was a lecture hall. And I was sitting down on, I exactly remember second row. First row seemed intimidating. So second row, it was close to the teacher. In parentheses, I was always a teacher's pet, so I tend, I wanted to continue that pattern. I sat down and they were handing out the syllabus. And I've never heard of such a thing. So we didn't have that back in Iran. So I, I mean, the teachers, (laughs) it's a luxury to know what's about to happen in Iran. Like, (laughs) oh, I see. (laughs) They show up. So everything's just sort of thrown at you anyway. Yeah, right. uh, it's, it's being a little bit more authoritarian, yeah. paternalistic, um, leadership mindset in Iran is very common. Mm-hmm. So the teacher shows up and it's a little bit kind of take it or leave it vibe. Uh, you don't need to have a plan for the future. So I got the syllabus and I had no clue what it is. So I look at the guy next to me. And I go, oh, excuse me. And my English is really bad. What it is, what is this? Something like that. I kind of put the words together, I guess. And he looks at me and goes, I'm sorry. Did I not tell you I have a girlfriend? He thought I'm hitting on him. And that was- You thought first- you were hitting on him because you were asking yeah. about the syllabus? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it was very odd because I don't have a very clear vision of why he thought that way. Maybe I was trying to be feminine because in my mind, I was, I, don't, I absolutely have no idea what that guy, his name was Ben. Ben, if you're listening, uh, you're a jackass. But <laughs> <laughs> that was my first attempt to make contact with other humans and it got shut down. But that's so interesting because, because I mean, I assume you were not dressed in a hijab. No, I wasn't. I, right. So, you know, so here you are 
looking, behaving, quote, free. Right. And, um, and the interpretation of it is some sexual advancement um, when you're actually being just inquiring about the syllabus is, I mean, that, that's gotta be, that's gotta be a head game right there. That's gonna mess with your coconut a little bit. Like what, what am I doing here? Yeah. And, and, and to be honest with you, the stereotype of the engineering crowd being a little bit emotionally, not as great, the sharpest in the, the tool in the shed is somewhat correct. Uh, um, I mean, I can say it because I'm an engineer. I mean, especially sure. when I did my first degree in electrical engineering, majority of time I was the only girl in class. Mm -hmm. So you would think that's a dream come true, but it was a nightmare because, you know, it was very much weird to operate within the realm of what the boys want to bond over and yes. being culturally different. And I'm not very familiar with the norms of my gender in a different country. Yes. I don't do it myself. So, so you, so you went to university. Did you pick engineering right away? I did. Um, so again, you you picked that because that was what your mom had been and was not allowed to be anymore. You right. said that 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 was kind of the impetus. Um. But did you did you find that did you find that you enjoyed it or were you just good at it? Because it's one of the things I've I've talked a lot about this with a lot of people is that I, I think there's a there's an act of courage where the thing I'm good at is not what I do. Yeah. Um there are things that I was very good at as a child that everybody thought I was gonna do that I didn't do. Not because I didn't like them and not because I wasn't good at them. I was very, very good at them. They just got boring for me. Um, was it, was it like that for you or was it someone else altogether? I don't want to project anything on you. I'm just asking. You're absolutely right. I think, um, it was the act of rebellion that was fun. The act that I went to the academic advisor and I asked their specific member, what's the most challenging engineering degree you have? Uh, and she said electrical. So I was like, okay, I guess that's it. Um, that was how I made this decision. <laughs> I'm one of the most challenging. And I did not enjoy it. Electrical engineering was not at all enjoyable. My second degree in bioengineering was somewhat enjoyable. And I really liked uh, getting closer to human psychology part of it and the neuroscience part of it. My master's was enjoyable system engineering. But electrical that I first chose just out of being a rebellious kid was horrible. Yeah, it's fascinating. So you that I mean, really, then. So how long did it take to get your electrical engineering degree? So I got in one year into it, I started my bioengineering. So I finished both of both degrees in four and a half years. Oh, so you did them both simultaneously? Yes. And I was oh, okay. working halfway to it full time. <laughs> so. Right. So then you get into the bioengineering and, and I really am fascinated by this um, invention, actually both your inventions. So the, uh, the arm, uh, um, which is eye stimulated, um, which is obviously bioengineering, but it's also, I guess, it's 
also somewhat mechanical and somewhat electrical engineering. I mean, it's, it's a whole combination there. Was that a plan? Were you looking to do that? Was there a, was there a specific impetus? Did you know somebody lost an arm or, you know, how did that come about? I mean, one of the things that was always fascinating to me was transhumanism, I think. I just making people better in general was always interesting. I always suffered from very bad vision. And even to this day, one of my eyes is almost non-working. Um, so the idea of being able to do something about it and making it even better than the status quo was always awesome. Like it seems like what humans are destined to become. So the, when I found out that a lot of people that are especially coming back from war or born with a missing limb have a very hard time training their prosthetics to actually work for them. And that level yes. of frustration mm -hmm. of getting your EMG, the muscle signal to work. And I found that so frustrating, maybe because I couldn't see for a while and I felt that level of frustration of that disability. I could understand that by the time you recover or get to a normal state, it must be emotionally painful. Mm -hmm. And I think I saw some YouTube video or something about some experience. And I brought that up to a professor I had at the time and he thought it's fascinating. So he brought a group of uh, army officers, army corps of engineers. So I had to give them a presentation about my idea and they immediately hired me to develop it. So how old were you then? I was 20, I think. So you're 20 years old. Yeah. You've got hired by military. Right. To develop a, um, well, what was, what was it you were developing? The interface or the actual, th what were you developing? So we were developing, the novel idea was that you use your eye signal, your EOG signal to operate the arm. So basically it extracts the signal from top, how your eye movement goes, top, bottom, and then ground on the your middle of your forehead. And then that feeds into the arm. And the reason why it is interesting is that humans intuitively first look at something before they wanna go grab it. Yes. So we wanted to capture that essence of being human. Mm. So that was providing the direction for your hand to go instead of your going through this like convoluted process of sending a signal to your arm and then training your EMG to go from there. So like, instead of using your arm, you're using your eyes to direct movement. Right. And I guess we, people didn't think about that. We actually do that first, that right. I'm going to pick up my water bowl. I at least glance at it to know sort of as a target where to aim. Yes. That's fascinating. Right. So, so how long did it, so you did that within a year, I guess, because you were yeah. 21. Exactly. We did. That's, that's freaking amazing, Sophie. And many, many nights of um, sleeping in the lab they gave us. So, <laughs> it was. so you went back to your high school mentality of, you know, work till midnight, sleep for four hours and get up and do it again. 
Oh, totally. Totally. So um, that I trained you for that. Oh yeah, I was ready. I was ready. And and the flow came back. I I was in flow again. Um, the concept of creation puts me in such a state of flow, a state of happiness, a state of being. So, yeah, that's so that, that for me is very interesting. And that's where I want to go with you because it's one of the things that, you know, you and I talked before and where I find there's a lot of common ground between us is there's this desire to create. Mm -hmm. There's the desire to understand the, the, the human mind and the brain. Um, the, those things come together for the betterment of humanity and yet we both have this spiritual philosophical background um, and all those things, those, that, that multifaceted texohedron or whatever the hell it is, you know, it's all these facets to it don't make sense to somebody who can only look at one or maybe even two of those sides. But for you, you were driven by that. And that for me is, is, is very fascinating because you you is there a part of you that consciously thinks about what is impossible or does it just happen to be here's the journey i'm on and oh they think it's impossible is it pre or post do you know maybe you don't know <laughs> that's okay too i think uh a pre and I don't know. I think it's one of those things I let unfold mm. and try to just. There is a Persian poem poet that talks about Sohrab Sefehri that maybe our job is not to decipher the secret of the rose, but enjoy it as it exists um, mm. or while it lasts. And I just enjoy the feeling while it lasts. And I go with it wherever it takes me mm -hmm. so what do you feel even today you know because now you're not 16 you're not 20 you you've gone you've had, achieved amazing things done amazing things what do you feel drives you on a daily basis because i'm assuming forgive me but i'm assuming you're not working till midnight sleeping four hours and getting up maybe i'm wrong maybe that's exactly what you're doing i have those days still but the new mystery has become me um the new mystery has become a lot more complicated than a robotic arm <laughs> and understanding me in the most honest way possible and uh as we discussed before, the, the shadows, the darkness, the whatever comes with that equation and understanding the nuances of it. I do a lot of experiments, let's put it that way. On myself, psychological experiments. I actually designed ex design experiments to see how I behave in different circumstances as a form to learn me as a system. And try to come up with the conclusion of what I am under stress. So I'm a stress mm. test myself once in a while. <laughs> so that's where I want to come to in the next section. I want to talk about that. That's an important piece is to look at. Um, it has been my journey in my entire life. It, every, I know for myself, um, I turned my back on the things that 
I was good at because the more fascinating subject was why I am the way I am, how I am the way I am, and how I can be something else. And and I see that in you. So I want to go in back into that shadow shadow piece, looking at yourself as a psychological experiment and and the the systems of who you are. Um, and I really want to thank you for for being part of the show and um, for really letting us into this journey of who you have become such an interesting person. You're now uh, working um, with these huge organizations, um, you know, from going from being a, as you said, a kid born in chaos to a gifted child um, to <laughs> what was it? The name of the school, the nuclear development high school or something. <laughs> like big clue um, to escaping from Iran to being a gifted uh, kid uh, here in, in North America, going to university, developing uh, a bionic uh, robotic arm with a different uh, targeting system using the eye. And, and, you know, all these huge achievements, as I said, working with all these great companies and then realizing that you're now at this place of, it's not just psychological self-discovery, which one might do with a, with a personal development book or even a therapist, but this is, you've taken this on, or what I found fascinating in our previous conversations is you've taken this on as a piece of scientific research, right? And so that's where I want to dive into because I think there's a lot in there for all of us. So we'll be back in the next section with my guest, Sophie Van La. She is an amazing human being who's done tremendous things. If you haven't heard the previous sections, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to them. And if you want to join in the conversation, of course, you can join us in our Facebook and LinkedIn groups under Curiosity Bites. And I also want to remind you that this episode of Curiosity Bites is brought to you by the awesome music project the awesome music project.com bringing together science music and story for mental health you can find out more about the awesome music project and the awesome music project foundation at the awesome music project.com we'll be back in just a couple of minutes i hope you'll join us for the next part of this delicious show stay curious my friends stay curious <laughs>